Well, it is a joy this morning to open the Word again, the Word of Life. We are in Acts chapter 5, picking up where we left off from the week before Christmas. A marvelous passage. Most of you are aware that the end goal of your life, if you profess to be a Christian, if you are a Christian, you understand that the end result of your life is that you will be conformed to the image of your Savior. You've been predestined to that end. That is God's goal with your life and mine. We don't add Jesus to our lives that we might have a good life. Jesus is our life, and we are in a pursuit of Christ's likeness. That is the end goal of our life, and therefore Paul commanded us, didn't he, to be imitators of him as he was an imitator of Christ. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are being transformed from one glory into the next as we progress in life. Christians, by and large, and by this I don't mean Christendom, I mean those who are truly believers, Christians by and large have always been, because they are growing in Christ's likeness, they have also always been a peaceable and compliant people. Like the Lord who purchased them, they see themselves in society as servants of their king and servants of others, people who exist for the good of other people. And like their Lord, Christians live honorable lives in this world. They seek to honor God. And because God has called them to honor the king, they seek to live honorable lives and submissive lives, even to earthly authorities as far as possible. They are peacemakers, not peace breakers. Christians are conciliatory, not contentious people. They are law-keeping, not law-breakers. We are not rebellious or defiant at heart. Christians do not live by the sword, but by the power of the Spirit and every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christians are the best of citizens, though they are citizens of another country. Christians long to love God and every man made in the image of God, which is every man. They live generously and they are willing to endure suffering and deprivation if necessary to minister to the needs of the poor and to one another, to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. They uphold everything that is noble and good and right and holy. They shine brightly like stars, like lights in a dark world. I have no trouble saying that those sinners, they are still in this world the best of people because they are like Christ. And yet, like Christ, they are often trodden upon in this world and they suffer great things at the hand of this world and it's Authorities like sheep to be slaughtered, says Paul. Christ's true church often finds itself the world's whipping boy. 
And because we are peaceable and because we value submission and because we honor authority and because we have a high regard for life, oftentimes we find ourselves perplexed, don't we, and tossed here and there by confusion when conflict arises between the church and the state. We're befuddled, aren't we, when the world hates us. It doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, if you're seeking to live your life for the good of others, for the glory of God, why would the world hate us? Why would people want to distance from us? Why would we find ourselves slandered for doing what is right and good? Why would we find ourselves opposed when all we want to do is be peaceable and lead upright and holy lives. How do we respond to things like this? I mean, how do we relate to civil authorities? How do we, how do we deal with the inevitable head-on collision between Christ and Caesar? How do we respond when we clash with the civil authorities and when do we obey the governing authorities and when should we and must we disobey those governing authorities and when should we resist and in what ways do we demonstrate that resistance and how do we keep our footing and even live with a holy boldness when we are opposed by the world around us? These are big questions. They're questions that confront all of us. And coming out of the last few years, they're questions that I hope you understand are applicable to us in our world in this day. We have known the, perhaps we could call it the peace of living in this country where we have not faced much by way of government intervention, but it's been a false peace in some ways and we know that the winds are changing, don't we? We should be prepared. It would be wise to be prepared for another onslaught, another collision in the days ahead. Much of the world lives with a constant struggle between Caesar and the church. And we want to prepare ourselves in the next couple of weeks. We're going to consider this issue of, of the Christian and civil government. And this morning, really, as we go through our text, we're just going to get some background. We won't delve very deeply into these questions this morning, but... We do see as we come to Luke, or I'm sorry, to Acts, chapter 5 and verse 12, we, we, we bump up against a summary. This is one of Luke's summaries. There have been a few of them already, but a summary of all that was happening with the church. And you recall when we left off, we're in the midst of sort of a, a, a long section here. There was a man who had been crippled from birth who used to beg up on the temple for money, you remember that Peter and John come and he is divinely healed by them, through them. And Peter and John use that opportunity to preach the gospel and that causes quite a stir. And uh, Peter and John are arrested and they're drawn before the Sanhedrin and they are threatened. If you're in Acts chapter 5, just look back at chapter 4 and verse 19 where we, re we read... Peter and John's historic and heroic answer to the Sanhedrin, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, 
you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. That is one of those statements that belongs certainly in your memory and it ought to motivate your heart. It ought to move us to be faithful to Christ no matter what. Then we saw, didn't we, the account of the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira and how God struck them dead for their deceit and their duplicitousness. And now, this morning, the scene shifts back to Solomon's portico. You remember that was part of the outer section of the temple. It was an area that was large. It was a large courtyard, and people could gather there under the shade of the portico. And that's where the church, since it had been born on the day of Pentecost, was meeting together corporately. They were in house to house, but then they would gather together up at the temple day by day. As we come to verses 12 to 14, we get a quick recounting by Luke as a transition really into this next confrontation with the Jewish authorities. And this is an incredibly instructive section of Scripture when it comes to the issue of of the church's relationship to civil government and to the issue of civil disobedience. But as I said, we'll leave most of that for next week and the week that follows if, if, if we need more time. Luke wants us to see a number of things in this account. He wants us to see, among many other things, parallels. I want you to keep these in your mind as we move through this. He wants you to see parallels that exist between Christ and his people. The experience of Jesus on this earth and that of his people. As it goes for the teacher, so it will go for the student for the disciple. Secondly, he wants us to see that Yahweh answers prayers very directly, very specifically. He also wants us to see that Christ's opponents have zero power in the face of Christ building his church. And he wants us to see that Christ's people have but one Lord. He wants us to have no confusion about who it is that we serve. We serve Christ alone. We obey him before men. Well, let's follow this fast-paced account of the apostles as they will find themselves again standing before Israel's highest court, threatened again by these men and faithful in the face of all of that. Before we do it, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, this is your word. It is pure. It is perfect. This is the word of life. We pray, Lord, that you might stir in us again greater zeal for you, greater love for you, a greater hunger for your kingdom, a greater longing to see your people flourish and grow, a greater obedience, Lord, to your great commission. Make us more faithful. Make us rejoice still more in all that you've accomplished for us. And Lord, stir us to obedience by these things we ask and all that for your glory. Amen. Verse 12. Now at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were happening among the people, and they, that is the church, were all gathered with one accord in Solomon's portico. Right away, right off, Luke begins with a demonstrating another specific answer to the prayer that was prayed back in chapter 4 
and verses 24 to 28. Flip back over there again. Look at it. It is a marvelous prayer. You'll notice that the church begins with this report from Peter and John, and the church responds in prayer. What do you do when persecution comes? You look to the Lord and you pray. And I love this. When they heard this, verse 24, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, Oh, Master, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You're the creator, in other words. You're God. And he says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. In other words, God, you said this was going to happen just this way. And they apply this text as it should be applied to their circumstances. He says, for truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. He's the, he's the Messiah. You're the one. He's the one you sent. Against him were Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do, note this, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. None of this is out of control. None of this is spiraling, somehow blowing around like uh, just some wild wind. No, all of this is according to your plan and your purpose. You are the sovereign God. Here is the church with a really sound theology of the sovereignty of God. And yet they find themselves tempted, don't they, to be threatened by the threats, to draw back and shrink back in fear. They know they have a responsibility to go forward against these headwinds. And so look at, they, they go from the heights of God as creator and God as sovereign, his transcendence, and they come right down to the imminence of God, his, his nearness, and they just make a very simple appeal. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and deliver us from them. Is that what it says? Lord, take note of their threats. Were they fearful? Yeah, they were fearful. Did they know the stakes were high? Yeah, they knew that. They understood the, the deal. They saw what happened to Peter and John, and they anticipated this is not going to get easier. This is going to get more difficult. Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. Help us to stride forward in faithfulness in spite of the cost, in spite of the risk. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through your name, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word with confidence. Answer number one. They wanted confidence, they got it. They wanted boldness, they got it. And when I preach to this text, I challenge you by asking you, are you timid in your testimony about Christ? Have you asked? You have not because you asked not. You want to be bold? You want to stand like a lion and preach the gospel of Christ uncompromisingly? 
then ask God for it. Seek him for it and then obey him. We'll see this again in our text. The disciples, the apostles had prayed. Not so much for a prayer of deliverance or a prayer of protection, but a prayer for courage. They trusted in the sovereign God. They knew that the sovereign God could could deal with them and protect them if he would. But what they really wanted was to be obedient in the midst. And so they asked for three things, that we would be faithful to speak your word with all confidence. It was answered. And then they ask that God might, through the preaching of his word, extend his hand to heal, which, yes, refers to physical healing, but I believe goes beyond that for for salvation, for the lost. That's what they wanted, and that's precisely what they saw. And then they ask that signs and wonders would continue, and we see in our passage today that's exactly what God granted Beloved, what we need to take from this is the recognition again that we need to pray courageous prayers according to the will of God and then expect that they would be met and stride out. We don't shrink back. We don't put our hand to the plow and look back. We're not seeking to live some sort of sheltered life where everybody likes us and we just get along. Jesus just put it so plainly when he said, cursed are you if all men speak well of you. What are we trying to to do? Live as covert Christians? No. No. Faithful believers who trust our God, who promise that by the preaching of his word, many would come to be saved. We have the assurance of that. And then Luke emphasizes yet again the unity of the people of God. He says they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Why does he say this over and over and over again? Because it is astonishing. They have have a common life in the Holy Spirit, and there was a common mind among them because they they had their mind wrapped around the apostles' teaching, and they wanted to be driven forward as one man to honor God in their corporate life. Oh, that we would be like this. Oh, that we would be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that we might live the kind of lives dedicated to one another that displays that Christ is our God. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that the church is now in the tens of thousands of people, and yet they are a unified bunch. And then Luke notes the impact that the church was having on the society around them. Look at verse 13. Remember, we're coming right off the heels of Ananias and Sapphira, and it says that, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. There were a number of people looking from the outside in who said, those people are not safe. That God is is serious. And you can understand why they would be hesitant. They wouldn't dare to associate with the church. I mean, at one level, the apostles were manifesting this amazing power, uh, divine power, miraculous power, and it's the kind of power that makes for a good show. People like to watch it, but people did not want to get too near that kind of power. And then people also knew that Peter and John had been arrested and had kind of gone afoul with the Sanhedrin and nobody wanted to to mess with the Sanhedrin and 
you know, a night in jail, it could get worse than that. And then you have the whole matter, as I said, of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, when God steps in and executes a couple of the people right in front of the congregation for their duplicitousness, people are a little hesitant. You remember in verse 5 and verse 11, we read these words, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. As the news of Ananias and Sapphira spread, People did not want to get too close. This was not seeker sensitive. This, this is not the kind of thing that a church ought to do if they're hoping to, to, to draw crowds. There was no room in this church for liars and for hypocrites and for those who are half-hearted and sort of ho-hum about their commitment. And yet, you, you look at where he goes next. He says, he says, however, you see that? None of the rest dared to associate with him. However, the people were holding them in high esteem. And here we have one of those parallels that I told you about between Jesus' followers and Jesus himself. Most people were very reluctant to actually follow Christ. They drew near to him when there was a freebie, when you got a free uh, a loaf of bread and, and some fish, or, or when, when there was a miracle to be done. They liked all of that. But in the end, people did not really want to follow him by and large, but his life absolutely captivated people. It held their attention. They held him in high regard. And so it is, beloved, with us. There ought to be, we've talked about this many times, but I've asked you before, are you okay with being different? Because Jesus is different than this world. Light is different than darkness. And if you're going to be light and, and you live in a dark world, there are going to be collisions. Are you okay being different? You see... People look at the church, and many, perhaps most, say it's too serious. It's too sober. There's too much sacrifice. They talk too much about sin. Their sermons are too long. My Sundays are too precious. That's the way it was with the early church, too. People were not willing to get too close, but they had a very high regard for Christians. They had a lofty respect for the church. These people lived on a different plane. They were like them and yet not like them, wonderfully not like them, attractively not like them. They, the, these were sincere people. These were serious people. They lived life not, not at that sort of eat, drink, and be merry level. They lived life on a level that understood there, there, is, there, is, there is heaven and, 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 and there is hell. They understood that life is eternal. They understood that there would be judgment and there would be justice. There would be recompense for sin. They talked about stuff that other people just refused to talk about. These were a devoted people. They were devoted to Christ. 
So much so, do you remember? They, they were selling their stuff. They were divesting themselves of material things that they might care for the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. They were devoted, the text tells us, to prayer. They didn't say prayers, they prayed. They, they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It wasn't something they simply flipped through and read a verse. No, they showed up. They were in earnest about learning it, memorizing it, meditating upon it, obeying it. They were devoted to one another. These were highly committed and generous people. They were full of sincere love. They were astonishing sacrificial. They were relationally warm. They were possessed by genuine concern to reach even people who were not like them with the gospel of life. They were serious about obedience. There was an integrity about the lives of these people. If I could put it this way, there was a Christ-likeness about them. Beloved, a life like this, whether it is yours or it is ours, a life like this, a life that really is following in the footsteps of Christ, is, is, it, is, it is a life of integrity. It is a life of, uh, uh, that's unapproachable, uh, uh, not unappro- irreproachable. It is, it, is, it is a life that is worthy of being honored and respected. We forget this. We think the world's not looking. I tell you they're looking. The problem with most of us is we just don't live out loud. And we're tempted to conceal our light under a bushel. And we shouldn't be so afraid. This kind of life has a double effect. Upon some, it evokes respect, and among others, it tends to repel them, particularly if they're uncommitted religious professors. The people who will turn more often than not are the uncommitted, which is why, beloved, listen, I hope you get this, right? I'm glad to see so many here this morning. I'm glad to see these chairs more filled than they've been in weeks past. And I, I know that people have been sick and all that kind of stuff. But look at, there, we need to understand this corporately. And I know you do. We are not here to try and, you know, uh, brand ourselves, if you will, in a way that somehow will be appealing to, to a world living in darkness. We, we are here to bear the brand marks of Christ, to bear the word of life to a world of death. We should be radically different. People should feel terribly uncomfortable, strangely so. There's a sense of like these people are incredible and there's a sense in which I don't know that I want to do this. People, by and large, want the convenient Christ. 
They want to attend church occasionally. They want to light a few candles. They want to say a few prayers. They want to sacrifice a few bucks. But in the end, they want the unintrusive Jesus. They want the Lord who will not claim one inch of their personal autonomy. That is not us. And if you're here looking for that, we'd love to talk to you. But you're not going to find it here. You see, this was the early church. This was no casual, feel-good, easy-does-it, Sunday-only, doctrine-light, fellowship, lukewarm sort of church. They, they, they did not sacrifice or give up anything. They did not compromise their witness in order to bear a supposed witness to unbelievers. And the fact is most did not want any part of it, but inwardly they had a high esteem. You understand that. Peter tells us that, doesn't he, that it's for our good works as men observe them that will be what? Applauded? Slandered, he says. And their slandering of your godliness glorifies God. If a man wishes to be a shepherd in the flock of God, he must be above reproach in the congregation. He must have a, get this, a good reputation with those outside. Now, there are a lot of people who may not like the sharp-angled words of a faithful pastor, but that man ought to have the regard of those who are on the outside looking in, saying at least there's a life of integrity that lives up to, be careful there, right? There's always that hypocrisy gap, but there's a life where, where a man's walk matches his talk. You see, this is who we are to be. John Stott writes this, quote, the paradoxical situation has often recurred since them. Since then, the presence of the living God, whether manifested through preaching or miracles or both, is always alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to the faith. That's the way it will always be. And that's precisely what happened here in the early church. Beloved, we are to be a particular people. And we are to live in a way that yes, will be the aroma of life to life to some, but it will be the aroma of death to others, and that's okay. It's not you they're smelling, it's Jesus, right? And ultimately, it's not you they're slandering, but him. It's not you they're kicking in the teeth, but him. That's how the church fills up the sufferings of Christ. Christ's body is still suffering the rejection of the world. And we need to do our part by living faithfully, living boldly, living transparently, living clearly, living, living faithfully in our world. Well, not everyone rejected them. Take a look at verse 14. Look at these words. And more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number, multitudes of men and women. Well, which is it, Luke? It's both. 
There were those who wouldn't associate. And more than ever, they were having a reception with those who were being called. You can just feel the train clickety-clack, 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 just picking up pace, 120 to 3,000. To day by day, the number the Lord was adding to their midst, to 5,000 men, to now what? More than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number, multitudes of men, but not just men. It, it went out to men and women, and there is no other category. You'll note that. Again, record it. Take it home with you. That's for free. All right? The head of the church is building his church, and he overrules every intent and every attempt of men to stop the progress. And it's exponential. It's relentless. We're in the tens of thousands. This is church growth like we've never seen it. It's absolutely exploding. And they're gathering in house to house and they're gathering for meals and they're sharing their goods and they're sharing their food and they're praying together and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And life is good. So much so it's even spilling over into the streets. Look at verse 15. To such an extent, he says, that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. Now, this is one of those places, again, if you were raised in the church and you just had to go, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before, you think through it again. Put yourself there. Where do you want to put Uncle Joe? I don't know. I, Peter comes by here about 2 o'clock every day. I don't know. Let's get him under that. Right? This, think of this. And all it took, it didn't take Benny and his jacket swinging and all the, be healed. It, all it took, all it took was Peter's shadow. It's incredible. It's amazing. And it's amazing to me that Luke doesn't even like put a sail on there, like pause and think about this for a minute. This is just run-of-the-mill first century. Peter's shadow is falling upon these people, and they're being healed. Peter's shadow falls, and boom, disease is eradicated. Peter's shadow falls, and boom, the demons are, 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 are evicted. That's amazing. And this is another specific answer to prayer. Do you remember? They had prayed that signs and wonders might continue to happen at the hands of the apostles. And so it is. And the word of God is spreading, and things are going on in Jerusalem that are just amazing. In fact, it was spilling over. Look at verse 16. Also, the multitude from, note this, the cities. This is in addition to what was going on in Jerusalem. The cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem. This is going viral were coming together and they were bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all being healed. And here again we see a parallel drawn between Christ and the work of his apostles. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God and so did the apostles. Jesus suffered the unjust persecution at the hands of the Sanhedrin and so the apostles. And while Jesus was rejected by most, he was respected by all, and so it is with the church. 
And Jesus healed the sick and delivered the possessed, and so it is with the apostles. You see, what the head does, the body does. This is Christ reigning from heaven and ruling what? And working through his people. Jesus is alive. Jesus is ascended. Jesus is building his church. Now, just by way of reminder, because we took some time on it, I'm not going to take any really today at all, but you need to remember there was a purpose in all of this, right? This was not some sort of spiritual fireworks display where you were just supposed to gawk at all that was happening. Why were the blind being given their sight? Why were the lame walking? Why were the demons being cast out? Well, because all of that had been prophesied about the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom, and now we see that working its way out through Christ's people. This is a foretaste, beloved, of the kingdom that is to come. And, as I told you when we were back in Acts chapter 2, these things obviously are to confirm the apostles as Christ's messenger and the gospel as Christ's message. This is one of those signs of apostle that, that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is not normative in our day. You should not be waiting for Jeff's shadow to fall upon you the next time you get COVID, okay? Or Charles's, if he could cast one. That's just a love tap. (laughs) You need to remember, Timothy was sick, wasn't he? Did Paul heal him? Or did Paul say, take a little wine? Epaphroditus was sick to the point of death. And Paul thanks God that God healed him because it would have caused him sorrow upon sorrow. Paul did not have power to heal in every instance. Paul himself had physical ailments that he was unable to heal. And so don't build from this again, this idea that somehow any church that's truly filled with the Spirit will have, will have shadow healers. No. In fact, I've never seen somebody attempt that. I'm sure it's been done. This was a very unique time in redemption history, and there's a lot to be conveyed here that, uh, that, that is different from our day. But then we read these words that surely, again, we go, this, this just cannot be. But how, how distinct is this from any Benny Hinn conference you've, or, or healing thing you've ever been to, which I hope is none? It says, and, and they were all being healed. There was no pulling of the quadriplegic. There was no sending the, the, the man blind from birth home, telling him maybe next time we'll have room for you. Leprosy was no problem. All of them were being healed, every last one of them, the affirm, the possessed alike, and all of this was terribly threatening to the Sanhedrin because these were their people and this was their city and this was their religion. And who are the disciples, the apostles, to to, to come in and, and take all of this? The people are coming to the apostles in droves. They're wildly popular. And it's here that Luke injects again another way that the apostles are like their Lord. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up 
It's interesting. You see people rising up or standing up throughout this whole passage over and over again. This guy rises and that guy rises. The high priest rose up and those with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and notice this, they were filled with jealousy. Just as they had hated Jesus without cause, so they hate these apostles without cause. They had done nothing wrong. They had harmed nobody. Everything they had done was good and right. They had given hope to the masses. They had, they had raised a man who had been crippled. They were sacrificial and generous with their stuff. I mean, there's nothing to, to, to finger here. They were hated without cause. And you remember the Pharisees had said of them that they delivered Jesus over what? Because of envy, Matthew 8, or 27, 18. And so the apostles here are going to be delivered over because of envy. They're going to suffer for their popularity. Just as Jesus was given stripes, they're going to be given stripes. That's next week. So Luke reveals the hearts of these leaders and Israel, uh, these leaders of Israel, and, and they are exposed he says they were filled with jealousy. You ever been filled with jealousy? You ever known that? They didn't care much for the approval of God. They didn't care much really about the truth. They had no concern really that anyone be saved or be helped. They had one goal and one goal in mind. It was king of the mountain. They were on top, and they wanted to maintain their status. They were into popularity they were into power, they were into the boastful pride of life, and it was an insatiable lust for them for recognition and for honor and for admiration. And beloved, again, if I can just make a quick point of application here, you need to be very, very aware of this thorny vice sort of creeping up again in your own life because it will forever deflect you into the weeds. All glory belongs to God. All glory belongs to God alone. And we come out of the womb as glory hogs, looking for it, looking to garner attention wherever we can, looking to get people to stick to us like Velcro. And I tell you, you're robbing God of his glory. You are a slave. We are servants unworthy to untie his sandals. Oh, that we would be like John the Baptist, that we would be like Moses, that we would be like Jesus himself, who never, who never sought exaltation, even though he were worthy of it. No, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And beloved, God will have all the glory and he will share none of it. And we need to be clear on this, that he dethrones me. And, and I am his servant. He is creator. I am creature. And I'm not seeking to garner anything for myself in this life, but any glory that I might attain to 
should be swiftly deflected like the moon of the sun. What does the moon have to boast about? It's a dusty rock. Oh, but in the night when it reflects the glory, how foolish would it be for the moon to boast? It would be utterly invisible were it not for the sun. He is worthy. He is beautiful. He is to be adored and appreciated. Man in his pomp, the psalmist writes, man in his pomp will not endure. And these men and their Jesus is, are, are, are stealing, diminishing their, their glory and their power and all the adulation of the people. And they won't have it. And so, verse 18, they laid hands on the apostles. And by this, we need to understand this time it's all the apostles. It's not just Peter and John. They're going to tie them all up. You can look down in verse 29. Notice it says, but Peter and the apostles answered. This is as they come out of out of jail to have to stand before the Sanhedrin again. This is all of them together. And, and the text tells us that, that they put them in a public jail. There is nothing quiet about this arrest. They're going to make an example of them. They're going to put them on, in public. They're going to put them in a place where people will know. And the Sadducees want to turn up the heat. They're tired of these guys. They're tired of the hassle. They're tired of the, of the defiance. And so they arrest them publicly. They're going to make an example of them. And God says, listen, is it public you want? Then I, you turn up the heat, and I'm going to turn up the volume. Go ahead. You imprison them. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison, taking them out. Now again, note that the angel of the Lord is going to actually close those prison doors and relock them. That's what you do. You always put things back, kids. That's what you do. You get out of your bed in the morning, you make it. This is why your parents keep me around because I make those kinds of statements. Listen, <laughs> the, the angel opens the doors, takes them out. This is a miraculous deliverance and he, he commands them. Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. The only part of that entire speech that the Sanhedrin could have gotten behind was go. Like, get out of here. That's the only part. I love this commandment because it is, it is defiant on every level. You know that three times in the book of Acts, God breaks through prison doors? And again, is that just wow factor or are we supposed to take something from that? Yeah, well, they weren't modern prisons. He certainly couldn't have done that at San Quentin. Nobody got out of Quentin in a lot of years. Right. God can do whatever he wants. And your circumstances, he's well aware. And they're no threat to him. Is the door locked? Who cares? I'll send an angel and unlock it. If that's what I want to do. Again, God, God can deliver his servants from anything. And I would say to you, don't, don't break the law and don't go to jail. You're likely to remain there, all right? Don't let this text inspire you to think you can get out. That's not the point. That's not the point. 
remember Paul spent many, many years in jail, didn't he? This wasn't even normative to the apostles. This was one time. And there'll be others. We live so often, don't we, thinking that somehow God wants to get me out of every difficulty. And God wants to free me from these circumstances. He wants to break the jail cell so I can have a breakthrough, right? That's another cultural Christian buzzword right now, breakthrough. I had a breakthrough. As if the devil and his demons are able to somehow, you know, hold the door locked. You know, Jesus is trying to open it and break you out. But listen, that is not the way the world works. God is sovereign. God wanted his people out of the jail cells, so he delivered them. He will exalt you at the proper time too, but you don't get to call when the proper time is, right? He does. What we do is we cast our cares on him because he cares for us, which is the first thing you doubt when you're in hot water. Does God care? Does he know? He knows, he cares, and as Jeff prayed earlier, his fingerprints are all over what you're going through right now. And I don't say that lightly because life is full of really, really, really hard things. But he is over them all. And you need fear nothing. You just keep your eyes fixed on him. And you serve him with joy in the midst of whatever you're suffering through, knowing that in the end he will deliver you, he will exalt you. Well, what do we say to this? The angel commands these men to directly defy the council's mandate, and they are not to be in submission to governing authorities here. And the reason is because the apostles have but one authority, one. And there is one from whom all authority comes. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and where? on earth has been given to me, all of it. So whatever authority the Sanhedrin had, they did not have the authority to forbid these men to do what God had commanded them to do. And so God opens the gates and says, you go right back at it. And that is exactly what they do. Look at the angel's command. Go, stand, and speak to the people. The whole message of this life Stand where? The temple, the very center of Israel's national and religious life. The temple, the very place where they had been arrested not long ago. Go back to the temple, the very place that those men forbade you to speak. You go back to the temple where the masses would be gathering for the morning sacrifice and prayers. You go to the temple, the very seat of the Sanhedrin's power and authority. And beyond that, I want you to speak. Speak what? The gospel, the whole message of this life. All the words of this life. You go preach the whole thing. Don't preach a half gospel. Don't talk about Jesus as your, as your, as your, you know, your Santa Claus in the sky who will give you exactly what you want in this life. No, you preach Christ as Savior, yes, from sin, 
Yes, and you preach him as Lord because he is Lord and he must be of your life. You come to bow the knee before him, you come to follow him. You come to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow that Jesus. You preach that gospel. He calls this gospel, I love this, you should cling to this. This was in one of the songs we sang this morning. The whole message of this life You remember back in Acts 3:15 Peter called Jesus the author or the prince of life You remember Jesus made a claim didn't he I am the way and the truth and the life that's exclusive, my friends. That tells us that life is not what we most of us assume, that it's something that just is and we all get it. No, there is the life. And there is physical life and there is spiritual life. There is a, a, a mundane sort of life where you just sort of cruise through and you do your deal for a while and then everybody assumes that it all just is, that's it. That's all there is to it. It just finishes. You just sort of go from go to nothing. The Bible tells us that is not true. That life is eternal for everyone who's ever been created. You will either spend eternity in hell separated from Christ and under the wrath of God, or you will spend eternity in heaven with Christ and under the blessing of God and the joy of God. And the question that that stands before each one of us is, how do you get from here to here? And the answer to that question is, Jesus. He is the way to eternal life. And he is the way to avoid eternal death. John tells us that Jesus has life in himself. Science can't even understand what life is, can they? They keep kind of throwing around. They can describe what life does, but they can't tell you what it is. Listen, Jesus alone has life. Scientists will never create it. They can't. It doesn't belong to them. <laughs> and I love Peter in John 6, 68, makes the great confession about Christ. Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, hey, look, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Beloved, there is no life apart from Christ He alone possesses it. He alone can give it. And when he gives it, he gives it abundantly. And he he says to these apostles, look, you go preach the whole gospel, that saving gospel, the only life-giving gospel. And you go preach it right up on the temple, and you preach it to those people, and many of them will find you a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling, but you preach it anyway. You go stand and preach that message. And they didn't waste any time. Verse 21, upon hearing this, they entered the temple about daybreak and they began to teach. What do you tell your children all the time? When mom or dad asks you to do something, don't dawdle. Do it now. Do it gladly which is the harder part, frankly. These men did it gladly, and they did it now. 
<laughs> Jack says, upon hearing this, there, there, there was no delay. It entered their ear, and they entered into the temple about daybreak. They got going before the Sanhedrin was even out of bed. And I love this. MacArthur makes a statement. He says, they were freed not to hide but they boldly returned to the temple and continued to preach. That's a great observation. They were not set free to absolve themselves of their gospel responsibilities. It actually increased them, didn't it? I mean, what would you be tempted to do? That was a close one. We got to go to Malta for the weekend. We got to head out for a little Mediterranean vacation and let things just die down here, right? That's the way we would think about it. This, God is great. We've had a breakthrough. Let's get why the getting's good. Not these guys. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. It's an impressive thing. There is this defiant courage, this radical obedience, this earnest dedication to the Great Commission. They're willing to suffer and suffer anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. Their response is never, I I couldn't think of one, not one time did they ever back down. They just run into trouble and they double down in their commitment. Well, we're out of time. And I wish we were. We're going to pull over here, and we will pick up with the proceedings next week. I do want to leave you with a few things this morning before we partake of the Lord's Supper. And I'll keep it very short. Can I say this? How brightly, beloved, Christ ought to be reflected in us. How much we should strive to be like him. To have our attitudes, his attitudes, and his actions, our actions. So that people would find themselves, yes, among us and looking at us like we're strange, but at the same time they would find us strangely wonderful and, and they, would be, they would be allured to Christ, who is beautiful. To some, we will be alarming, there's no question, but to others, we will appeal. And again, it's not we who are appealing, but Jesus in us who is appealing, and we ought to strive to have as much of that as we possibly can. Secondly, how committed we ought to be to proclaiming Christ and declaring what amounts to be the only life-giving gospel. Do you want to give life to people? Some of you have taken CPR classes. Why? Because you value life. You're even willing to pick up some weird bug in order to save somebody's life because we serve the God of life and we treasure life and the thought of somebody eternally in hell burdens our hearts. We're not so selfish so as to say, well, I'm in, so I'm not concerned about anybody else. No, that's the world. We're deeply burdened. We want to honor our Lord. We ought to manifest this same sort of Put me in jail, I don't care. Tomorrow I'll be right back at it if he lets me out. 
Thirdly, how unwavering we ought to be in our determination to honor and obey God before any human institution. I mean, if there's anything that COVID taught me, it, it was that uh, there's, there's a bunch of stuff I just had never thought through, really. And I'd only inevitably thought through the Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and some of those other passages that just said, look, Submit to the governing authorities. One realizes when you begin to think through that in a more detailed way and in a context like we had on the heels of COVID that, that there are times when the governing authorities will transgress their own authority in seeking to, to limit Christ's church and that the church has to stand up like these men stood up to say, oh no, we need to be resolved as much as we love being Americans or delight living in the state of California <laughs> or whatever, we, we understand that all authority comes from God and he is first and foremost and we serve Christ alone. And we've got to be ready to declare it and live it. And fourthly this, as we come to the table, how grateful we ought to be for Jesus who is, as Peter preaches in this text, our leader and our savior, for he has granted us repentance. Did you hear those words? You didn't repent because you were smart. You repented because you were called of God and you were graced of God, both to repent and to believe. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks and praise for your righteousness endures forever. Your compassion is great. You've removed our sins as far as east is from west and as white as snow. Lord, our, our sin-stained record has been cleansed. And we have the promise not just of the joy of heaven in our hearts and in our midst now, but we have the joy of heaven forever and ever. For the one who comes to you shall never perish. Thank you for being our deliverer. Lord, we pray that you would continue to have your way in us, continue to conform us to your likeness, that our joy might be full, and that your honor, praise, and glory might be manifested. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.